Turn to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory here. We're going to read verses 34 to 42. But I want to tell you what happens before that in Acts. Earlier in chapter 5, you read about Ananias and Sapphira. And if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, they were a couple that had given themselves to a lie. And that lie had been revealed by the Holy Spirit through Peter. And God struck them down and they were buried. As you move forward from there, the apostles were still in Jerusalem and they had been preaching and teaching as Jesus had commanded them when he left. And they were seeing a lot of fruit from their work. In verse 14 it says, All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. And then the Jewish leaders who had been very upset and uh, jealous at Jesus and had been largely responsible for him being put to death became jealous also of the apostles who were carrying on, continuing the work that Jesus had begun. And so it says that they were filled with jealousy in verse 17 and that then they arrested the apostles. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Then they're released by an angel, which is awesome, right? Kids, you paying attention? You catch that? Released from jail by an angel? That's really cool. Uh, and then it gets better because... Um, the the leaders get together and they're ready to have a trial for these guys and they don't realize that they're missing yet. So they send people to the jail to go get them. They send the soldiers and the soldiers come back and they're like, I don't know, they're gone. Then somebody comes and tells them, hey, they're preaching in the temple again. So they go and they bring them and... The high priest questions them, verse 28, it says, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, who is this man's blood? This man. This man, of course, the Sunday school answer, all you kids know. It's Jesus, right? Anytime this man, right? Okay. So, they're not just jealous of Jesus, they're not just jealous of his apostles, of the leadership that these men have, that the people were beginning to follow them, that they had influence, that the leaders really wanted for themselves. They're also recognizing the fact that they bear guilt for the death of Jesus, and they don't want anybody else to recognize that fact, right? 
So Peter and the apostles answer, and they just declare the gospel. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, I'll just read their answer right here before we start. We'll, I'll start reading a little bit earlier in our text. Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Now we get to our text. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So the apostles are on trial, and Peter preaches a sermon instead of making a defense. And then the judges are furious because they're confronted with their own sin. And this is always what proclaiming the gospel looks like. It means being confronted with sin. Anytime that somebody talks about proclaiming the gospel or preaching the gospel, and they mean that as in contrast to confronting people with their sins. Listen to me closely. If they mean that in a sense of the opposite of what we see here, then they don't understand what it means to preach the gospel. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, it is a stumbling block to the wise, to the powerful, excuse me. It is a stumbling block to even the Jews and the Jewish leaders, the, the chosen people of the Lord who had the Old Testament, a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so 
This is what it looks like for Peter. Thank you. You may have to bear with me a little bit this morning. My whole head is messed up today. Um, so, So Peter preaches the gospel, and of course, what I've been saying is it makes those who are listening to him angry because it confronts them with their sins as it then declares that Jesus is the the power of God for forgiveness of those sins. And so often today, um, what people want to do is they want to make the gospel into something that smooths away the offense of our sin, that smooths away the offense of the law rather than driving the guilt of our sins home so that we look to Jesus Christ. Now, if anybody ever makes use of our guilt to drive us to anything besides Jesus Christ, that is also not the gospel, right? And of course, there are many ways that we can be manipulated and that we manipulate others with their sins in order to get something. So you think about when you refuse to forgive when you're in a fight with maybe your husband or your wife or maybe your brother or sister or some somebody that you're upset with and and they begin to realize their own sin, right there you're faced with the option of what you're going to do about that, right? And here's what the the uh, the religious leaders they say: you're trying to make that sin come down on us. The blood of the blood of that man, this man, you're trying to make us guilty of that blood. <clears throat> and Peter says, "You are guilty." What we want to do is we want to say, "Yeah." Yeah, you shouldn't have done that to me. And now you owe me. Right? Isn't that how we respond when people sin against us? And so Peter and the apostles could have said to the religious leaders, to the high priests and so forth, yeah, you did kill Jesus, and now you owe us, his followers. You've arrested us. Yeah, you're guilty. And now... We're going to go out and we're going to tell everybody and we're going to make your life even more miserable unless you shape up or unless you let us keep going without arresting us. Or There's all sorts of ways that you, that you could have made use of this if you were in the apostles' position. But instead what they do is they say, yeah, you have sin and actually your sin is worse even than you're afraid of it being. And you're, it's worse even than you're afraid of it being known. And that's, I think, the biggest thing for the for, for us and for them. Isn't so much our sin being deep and dark and hateful, but that other people would see it in its deepness and its darkness and its hatefulness, right? That's what we don't want known. And that's where, instead of using it for any other purpose, any other uh, gain for himself or for, for the apostles, instead, Peter turns it to the gain of the gospel proclamation, the kingdom of God going forth in power. 
Now, there is gain there for the apostles, you understand, right? Because if any of these men convert, are, are by the power of the Holy Spirit changed, that's a help. That weakens that party and strengthens the party that the apostles are in, right? And so, yeah, there is, there is always benefit to, that, that accrues to the church of God when the gospel accomplishes work in the world. And we don't have any, we, we should not feel any qualms about receiving that benefit. It's a sweet, good thing that God has blessed his church with that when the gospel bears fruit, he receives the glory and his people receive the benefit. Right? So here, the, the apostles are. Peter preaches that sermon and he preaches directly to the sin of the people before him and he proclaims the gospel in their presence to them, calling them to believe, to have hope, to trust him. And they want to kill Peter and the apostles for it. So whenever... Uh, and I, you know, I've said this, I'm going to say it and say it and say it. Whenever we want to use the gospel to soften the blow of the law, it does not, it cannot soften the blow of the law. It only makes more clear how deep our sins are. Because it shows that it required a man, the perfect son of God, to die. And that was the only way that our sins could be dealt with. And so, the proclamation of the gospel reveals to people how deep their sin really is, how dark their sin really is. Does that make sense? And so anytime somebody says, well, people already know they're sinners, they just need to hear the gospel. They don't understand what proclaiming the gospel looks like when the words come out of their mouth. They may even preach the gospel accurately, but they have no clue what happens when it's, when it's proclaimed. Because it demonstrates to us, it opens our eyes to the, to the darkness of our sin, to the depths of it, to what, how offensive it is to God that he had to send his only son in order that it could be wiped away. And then, as they're ready to kill the apostles because of the preaching of the word, because of the preaching of the gospel, Gamaliel says, hold up. Now, who is Gamaliel? Well, he's a Pharisee. Pharisees were the conservative religious leaders, right? He is a teacher of the law, which means, I mean, of course, he's in this council, so you know he knows the Old Testament. But if it's called out as, if he is called out as a teacher of the law in this case, you understand that it's saying that even among the religious leaders, even among the teachers, he was a teacher. And then it follows that up and says, respected by all the people. So Gamaliel is quite the man. 
What else do we know about Gamaliel? Does anybody remember where else we hear about Gamaliel? And What's that? That's right. The Apostle Paul talks about his credentials later on in the book of Acts. And, he's, and he talks about Gamaliel being trained under Gamaliel as proof of how, how, uh, how much of a Jew of Jews he really was. Okay, so Gamaliel isn't just respected here in this verse. You know, we see how how uh, respected he was. We see how conservative he was. We see how committed he was to the teaching of the Old Testament. Even later on in the Book of Acts, where Paul is saying, "Hey, I trained under Gamaliel. I know the law inside and out. I know the Old Testament." <clears throat> so much can be said positively about Gamaliel. The people respected him, and that's one of the requirements for an elder, right? He's a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, meaning he actually believes the Bible. He's level-headed. He doesn't let his emotions get... Uh, away with him, like the rest of the council, they were all ready to just be like, ah, kill him! And he is the voice of reason standing up and saying, wait a minute, there's a, there's a better way to pursue this than just doing whatever comes into our minds based on our emotions. Right? We can also see that he's politically savvy. That's why his course of action that he proposes is wise. <clears throat> he knows that it would be political suicide to put these men to death, right? Why? Well, because the people are obsessed with them. What did we see earlier in the chapter? That more and more people were being added to their number, but it also, I skipped the, the, the next part of that sentence where it says that they would just, <clears throat> they were dragging sick people out into the streets so that the, so that they could be healed as the apostles walked by. So, you don't put people to death like that, right? <laughs> not if you, not if you're a leader and you know what's good for you. I mean, <clears throat> there's a time to uh, to come out as an enemy of somebody who's somewhat popular, right? Trump is an expert at coming out as an enemy of the of popular people at the right time. You, you see, but he's and he's using it expertly politically to get the right to get his his base on his side to strengthen his support and so forth. Man, you knew I ran out. Thank you. <clears throat> so there's a time for this, but this was not the time for it, right? <laughs> there was there was not a big group of people that were that were angry at the apostles because of how they were behaving in public. No, they were healing people. They were performing miracles. They were super popular. And so Gamaliel is politically savvy. 
he's not just level-headed and able to rule his own emotions, but he is able to restrain the whole court, this whole group of men who are letting their emotions run away with them. And he's able to restrain it in their, their desired course of action, which is just kill these guys. He's able to restrain it with reason, which is impressive to get through with reason to somebody who's just filled with such anger that they have bloodlust. Have you ever tried to reason with somebody like that? I'm thinking of Joe right now. He's told me about trying to referee in intramural sports. (laughs) I mean, there's probably no better place to, to see that it's impossible to reason with people who are angry and so angry that they're filled with bloodlust, right? Not that they, not that they're actively trying to kill somebody, but that it's in their heart, right? And there's no reasoning with them. You just have to throw them out. Am I right? Yeah, he, I'm right. And there are many other examples. <clears throat> where we see how hard it is to try to get through to people who are at this fever pitch of emotion. And it doesn't have to only be anger. It can be fear. Have you ever tried to reason with somebody who's terrified? There's no reasoning with somebody who's terrified, right? (laughs) A couple weeks ago, I had the double stroller, and I had Annabelle and Fiona, and we went for a walk. We always go around this pond. And <clears throat> I said, hey, Fiona, you want to go in the pond? And I just turned off the path into the grass. And, you know, suddenly she turned into this screaming, terror-stricken little girl, which is kind of the point. I mean, I'm kind of cruel like that as a dad. I wanted to scare her. I, Tate comes by it honestly. He likes to scare people. He learned that from me. But of course, what boys don't like to scare people, really? I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. So anyway, she was terror-stricken. I tried to, you know, get her calmed down to the point, like, you know, you know, really, this isn't actually that scary for me to slightly turn and stay on the path, and, and I'm not actually going to put you in the water, you know, all this. But it didn't matter. The fear was in her. And so then the other boys started going like, hey, Fiona, should I go get in the water? And they'd run towards the... And she just, she could not get over her her terror. There was no reasoning with her. Now, have you ever tried reasoning with a two-year-old in the first place? There's no reasoning with a two-year-old. But we've, we've experienced fear, each of us, and know how hard it is to begin to break through that kind of depth of emotion and to reason. Depression is another great one. Where I, I get depressed on a semi-regular basis, and when I get depressed, Heidi will often ask me, why? Why are you depressed? And at this point, I just, I don't even, I used to try to figure it out and answer and give some sort of reason. At this point, I don't even bother, but does depression ever make sense? It never makes sense. You, you can talk reason, I, I, I 
can talk reason. In the midst of my depression, I can say, here are the wonderful things that God has done. Here are the good things that I have to be grateful for and joyful in. Here are the reasons why I should rejoice and why I shouldn't be depressed. But how hard is it to break through emotion with reason? And yet Gamaliel is able to break through not just his own emotion, which he clearly was cut to the quick as well. It's not like he just was the only one who wasn't emotionally struck to the quick, to the heart, by what Peter said. No, he was, but he's able not just to break through that, but also to break through with reason to all of those other men and to calm them and to bring them to a better course of action. There's a lot to be said good for Gamaliel, isn't there? He's an amazing man. God uses him to save the apostles at this point. He also speaks the truth. He says, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. The same can be said of this church, our church. If this church, if this plan that we have to build and to, to grow the gospel influence on the east side of Cincinnati, if that plan is of man, what will happen to it? It will be overthrown. And that's really what he was talking about in the context of a different city at a different time. A new church with the same goal, established under the same authority. And he says, if it's of a man, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, before I continue, let me stop and say, this is not some sort of guarantee that this particular church will be around in three years, five years, or 300 years. You understand why that's the case. Because the the work that is being done is broader than simply the establishment of one particular manifestation of the body of Christ, which is what this church is. Okay, and so that's why you have this uh, <clears throat> this sweet little change. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And so, if the work of God is being done here, it is being done in us and by us. But it is being done in us. It is being accomplished in us. There is fruit in our lives if the work of God is being accomplished. And if that is the case, 
we will not be overthrown. Regardless of whether this church continues, and some of you have been in churches that have not continued, have not succeeded, if you will, all right, or have failed, or what have you. But has the work of God been overthrown that was done in those churches? No. Gamaliel speaks the truth. God was establishing his church at that time through the apostles, and nothing, even the gates of hell, will prevail against his church. Fighting against God's church is fighting against God. Now, having said all of that about Gamaliel, all of that good, Gamaliel gave bad counsel in this passage. And we are tempted to take his counsel for ourselves. That group of men should have made a judgment and pursued it. Now, why do I say that? Well, they were the judges of Israel. If the apostles were leading the people away from God, they should have opposed them in the extreme. Not with this beating them and telling them to stop it. And actually, as we know, the apostles were sent of God, from God, by God, doing the work of God. And so, what that group, what that council, what that trial body should have done was they should have judged accurately and declared publicly that this is the work of God and given their support to it. And instead, what Gamaliel says is, here's what he says that's true. If it's of man, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, we can't oppose them or we'll be fighting against God. And then what he says is what? Do you remember what his counsel from that point is? He says, stay away from these men. Let them alone. And they took his advice. Now, I said that this is bad advice. They should have made a judgment, and then they should have pursued that judgment. <clears throat> they were the judges of Israel. We are not to watch, take a wait-and-see approach to almost anything, but certainly not to this big kind of question. Um, there are times to, to wait and see. There are times to stay away because you don't know 
whether something is good or bad, and you're just like, well, we'll see what comes of it. But when you're dealing with such fundamental, basic questions of truth, theology, if you will, uh, theology most proper, you're dealing with the core of what we would say today, the core of the gospel is what you're dealing with, right? And of course, it's obvious that it's the core of the gospel because Peter's preaching the gospel. But back then, what you would have said is you're dealing with the core of the faith. You're dealing with the, the, the central things of God. And they say, eh, let's take a wait and see approach. You see how that's a problem. Why do we want to do that, though? Well, we want to do that because we don't want to um, do the work of giving our support and, and doing the work of building when there's no guarantee yet how it's going to turn out. Does that make sense? It's like, eh, you know let's take a wait-and-see approach. It's kind of like being a fan of, you know, the Bulls in the mid-90s or, or of the, um, the Cubs after they win the World Series. Or, you know, it's the, the fair-weather friend. It's the fair-weather fan. It's, the, it's, always, it's always fun. So we got another example back there. What? Bandwagon fan, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> it's always fun to join the bandwagon when everything's going well, right? But who gets the joy, the real joy, when the Cubs win the World Series after how many years was it? 90 or something? You know. <laughs> who gets the joy? Is the people who were the fans year after year after year after year when it was not going well. Now, sports is so stupid. I mean, but we understand through sports, so so I use it because it's helpful for us to see what we want to do with things that are actually important. I don't care if you want to be a bandwagon fan of whatever team in the NFL happens to be winning and doing well this year. Fine. I mean, it's kind of disgusting, but whatever. Like... Because it's just sports, it doesn't matter, right? But here you're dealing with guys, men, who are the top of the theological leadership. They are the the rulers and leaders of God's people in Judea, in Jerusalem. Not just, they are the center of the leadership of God's kingdom prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, And their job as leaders was to join with the Messiah in building his kingdom, in establishing his church. Their job was to declare the truth and to say all of these things that we've been teaching, and of course they had things wrong that they had to repent of in order to join with Jesus Christ, right? But 
everything that they got right, which Jesus says, they got a lot right. <laughs> right? Everything that they got right, they're supposed to say, it points to him. It, it bolsters him. It builds him and his kingdom, his church. And instead, they're going, eh, let's wait and see whether it takes off. Let's wait and see if he starts winning. We are not to look on and wait and see whether something starts succeeding and then make our decision of whether to support it on the basis of whether it is succeeding or not. Because the moment that we will do that, we will judge succeeding on the basis of the world's version of success. Does that make sense? It will be our judgment, not of whether this is good and true and right versus wrong, false, and destructive. We won't be judging based on that because, yeah, you do look at the fruit of something to, to help you in, in deciding whether it's good or bad, whether it's right or wrong, true or false. You do look at the fruit. But if you're unwilling to, to speak about whether this thing is true or false, because you want to wait and see whether, the, whether it's, it's growing or not, then all you're looking at is whether it's growing or not. And so whatever thing happens to come along that gets people excited, you'll jump on that bandwagon. And you'll jump on that bandwagon theologically. Because there's always hip theological bandwagon movements, right? I mean, there, there's never a time. Some of them are real short spikes. Some of them are longer, bigger waves that come and then, and then recede. But there's always these sorts of bandwagon, theologically important, wrong things. When will Joel Osteen's movement be overthrown? Has it already? It's waning. Right? How many years has the Roman Catholic bandwagon been falling apart? I mean, it's falling apart. And we're in a Roman Catholic city. And that matters for us thinking about how we talk to Roman Catholics, how we talk about Roman Catholicism, what we point out, right? How much is left of that bandwagon? Are we finally willing to join with men who were bold enough 500 years ago to speak clearly about the Roman Catholic Church here in Cincinnati? 
And speaking clearly means saying that it is a church that is opposed to God today. It doesn't mean that there are no Christians in it any more than that there were no uh, converts among the Jews, including among the Pharisees, including among the rulers. Because it says in Acts that there were, there, there were constantly people being added to their number. And it also mentions specifically that the rulers, many of the Pharisee rulers, were, were the teachers of the law, were converted. Gamaliel refused to make a judgment and died before the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. God overthrew the Jewish religion. But it was too late for Gamaliel to see it and to throw himself on the right bandwagon, the successful one. He already had the information he needed. And that's the way it is with us. We want to join with the things that are, that are exciting, that are successful, that have growing numbers and growing, uh, you know, clout in the world. But what are we joining ourselves to and why? For us Americans, basically, we think that things can always just be judged by the numbers, right? If it's right, it'll work its way out in the market. Capitalism at its finest, you know. No, it's it's popular today to be to to challenge that, to hate capitalism, whatever. The, among, it's, it's hip among a small group of people to, to oppose that idea. But we still basically look at something as might makes right or numbers prove the, the reality. And that's why we're tempted to take Gamaliel's advice. Because what that allows us to do is avoid persecution. You can always just jump on whatever the ascendant, the growing movement is. You can jump to it and say, hey, you know, and you guys, politicians are masters at this, right? We complain about how they change their minds all the time, but it's like, well, they got elected, didn't they? Isn't that... How they got elected? By placing themselves in the position where there were enough people to support them. And when the, and when the movement begins to shift, the crowds begin to change and the winds begin to change, they're just sailing at the top. They want to avoid being overthrown. We want to avoid simply being persecuted, even the most minor little pieces of persecution. So 
Nobody gets persecuted for being in the Roman Catholic Church in Cincinnati. Nobody gets persecuted for being at Crossroads in Cincinnati. Right? Why? Well, because they're ascendant. They're at the top of their game. Well, Roman Catholic Church is not at the top of its game, but it is still at the top in Cincinnati. Right? And so, there's an awful lot of work and pain and persecution as well that goes into uh, going against Gamaliel's advice and saying, no, we have to make a judgment. We have to decide whether what something is, whether this being proclaimed is true or false. And we have to give ourselves to the true side. When we refuse to oppose those who falsely claim to be men of God, who falsely claim to be doing his work, when in reality they're pursuing their own plan. So this is the negative side, the posi- you know, the flip side of the question. On the one hand, we get to avoid persecution if we just jump to the popular thing. And on the other hand, we get to... <coughs> Excuse me. We get to avoid the hard work <clears throat> we get to avoid the hard work of facing that judgment and, and opposing people who truly need to be opposed if we refuse to make that judgment. <clears throat> and so if we're going to be beneficial, like the apostles were in Jerusalem, if we, as Christians, are going to be beneficial here in Cincinnati, we need to be, like the apostles were, 100% committed to their cause. Their cause was obeying Christ by building the church. This is the one cause that we know will never be overthrown. And we should also pursue it like the apostles. How did they do it? Well, we, I went back and I read a little bit of that chapter, but you need to think about what the apostles did more broadly. You need to think about their life while Jesus was still alive. You need to think about what comes after this in Acts. But what can we say about the apostles and how they pursued the work that God gave them in Jesus Christ, well, we can say that they sacrificed everything for the sake of that work. We can say that they worked hard at it. We can say they were very inconvenienced by it. Ending up in jail, right? Pretty inconvenient. Ending up in jail, again, more inconvenient. And most of these men had families, right? So not just inconvenient for them and also inconvenient for their families, not just inconvenient for their families, but terribly fearful, right? And 
it just wasn't inconvenience. It was real suffering. They were beaten before they were released. But what else do we read? It says they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So from beginning to end, Gamaliel and the rest of the council were seeking to avoid shame. And from beginning to end, the apostles, what? Embraced the shame of the gospel. They even rejoiced in the end that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Can we, are we pursuing this work like the apostles? Suffering for his name. Yeah, there's always going to be shame that comes along with that. People will be opposed to it. It will be uh, embarrassing. The kinds of things that happen to us because of our embrace of the gospel. But we can rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer. Don't grow depressed at that moment like me, it's unreasonable. It's a glorious thing that God would say, you are mine, and then prove it by allowing us to suffer for his name. That's what happens to those who are called by his name. That's what he promised. And so then when it comes, can we, like the apostles, rejoice in it. We should. It is sweet. It is joyful. And remember that Gamaliel speaks the truth. They can oppose it all they want. But the work of God is not going to be stopped. And that is truly joyful. The apostles knew that even if they killed them, you remember what Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, they said, you can kill us to King Nebuchadnezzar. But even then, we're not going to bow down. And that was their declaration that God was more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar no matter what happened to them. And that's what the apostles, all of them died for the sake of the gospel. Church history teaches us. All of them. And yet what? Was the work overthrown when the apostles died? (laughs) No. Even if they kill us, God's work, God's kingdom, is built. Let's pray.